Do you want to have impact and purpose without disrupting your life or leaving your day job? Podcasting may be the perfect fit for you, your experience, and your voice. Sign up for my upcoming free course where you will learn how to start podcasting using your unique voice, create a platform in four weeks, get access to resources, and more. Go to www.disruptingbalance.com slash podu. That's P-O-D-U to sign up now. I found, especially now in 2020, I'm very grateful for the lessons that I've learned in 2020 because I think it is making me more aware of how those two mindsets can work for and against each other. If I'm really tired, one of those areas is going to suffer. I'm going to have like a, you know, write a bad scene and it's just going to fall flat or I'm going to have a bad session and I really need that. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. On today's episode, we have Samantha Hewigan. Samantha is a Latinx sex therapist and best-selling author who found her way to the field after leaving her home in Michigan for the University of South Florida. And as much as the first-generation college graduate appreciated the close-knit community of her Latin family, she knew that she wanted more than her nuclear community had to offer overcoming learning disabilities, self-limiting beliefs around her intelligence, and finding that desire to define life on her own terms, Samantha had her spark to not only graduate college, but to receive a master's degree, become licensed as a therapist, and become a best-selling science fiction author. Samantha is passionate about helping others and is excited about her ability to combine her two worlds of therapy and creativity in her writing. Her books include Dawn Among the Stars, Finding Starlight, and Stardust Emerging. Learn more about Samantha, her practice, her books, and her life at www.samanthahewigan.com. That's S-A-M-A-N-T-H-A-H-E-U-W-A-G-E-N. She's also on social media. Get more on that in the show notes. So welcome everybody to today's episode. In the guest chair, we have Samantha Hewigan. How are you doing, Samantha? I'm very, very well. I'm very sad that in Atlanta, Georgia, it's still hot. So I'm a little sweaty, but I'm super excited (laughs) to be here and really pumped to talk about all the things that we have planned to talk about. We're going to jump right in with what is your story? You know, you asked me that not too long ago, and I still haven't come up with a good answer. So I'm going to tell you about who I am and what I do, because I think that is the crust of the 
the whole thing, the whole kit and caboodle. So my name is Samantha Hugan. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I'm also a certified sex therapist. So I help people by doing talk therapy around the realm of sex, sexuality, relationships, you name it, your girl can do it. And I love doing it. I'm also bilingual, so I'm a Latinx individual that does therapy and life in two different languages. So my mind goes back and forth in Spanish and in English. Don't ask me which one I learned first because it just has always felt like it's there within me, just living its best life. It's a mezcla, if you will, which is a Spanish word for, for mix or Spanglish if you really want to get fancy with it. But I enjoy helping people that through that joy, through that love, I discovered you know, therapy because I was not somebody who was in therapy my entire life. I didn't get introduced to therapy until very much later as a, a young adult after college. And through that, realized that I could write because who, who, who doesn't have anything else better to do? But I decided writing would not only be my gateway to, again, help people, but it would be my way of giving myself a little reprieve and working through whatever issues I needed to work through as an individual on the paper. So I'm also an author. I have three books out currently. It's called the Starless series. So we have Dawn Among the Stars, Fading Starlight, and Stardust Emerging. I am super close to wrapping up the series with the fourth book, and I'm going to give you a little baby exclusive. The title of that is In the Wake of Stars, and that will come out sometime in 2021, which is really exciting. But that series for me is kind of the, just the cherry on top of what I do. And, and like you said, my story, I take what I've learned as a therapist and I put it onto the page in a fictional way. The series focuses on what it would be like when a, a world changing, mind altering, existence questioning phenomena happens, which is the coming of aliens, which is funny because 2020 rolled up and I feel like I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't foresee COVID happening. But the way that the characters have, you know, navigated their new world with aliens is so similar to what has been going on in 2020. Mm -hmm. So I know when we spoke, you talked about your series taking place in Michigan. Yes. And Michigan is very special to you. And so tell me a little bit about Michigan, why it's special, and your background with Michigan. So I was born in Glendale, Arizona, but my family, so my two parents, are both from Michigan, different parts of the state. So if you can recall from your social studies classes or history classes, Michigan is shaped like a mitten. My dad is from outside of Detroit, and my mom is from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is on the west side, the opposite of the thumb. And both of them met and, you know, lived in Michigan until he decided to join the Air Force. And so I was born, and that's why I was born in Arizona. But my family decided when he was done with that, they were going to move back to Michigan. So I've been in Michigan. I want to say I had been there for almost 22, 23 years before I jumped ship and left. But Michigan is the center of the Starless series because for me, even though I don't live there currently, I still love the state. I still love all of the seasons. I still love the people, even though, you know, we live in questionable times and I'm kind of disappointed and disappointed in some of them, but I am still connected. Uh, I think when you are born and raised in Michigan, as so many of the people that I know, you know, my family included, you have this Michigan pride that just stays with you. And even though I might not agree with all the politics or agree with what was going on all the way, 
I still am proud to be from Michigan. My accent, in English at least, is that Midwestern, weird, very heavy A sounding. And I still carry that, even though I kind of come Southern when I get very over animated. And I still use y'all because y'all is a gender neutral term that I've always appreciated. But Michigan is the center of the series because it's the center of my life. It's like my ode to that beautiful state. It's my ode to the people there um, and how we can do better. All right. So when we moved from Arizona back to Michigan, we lived in Grand Rapids, where my mom is from. And at that time, I, again, I don't remember when I was learning English and Spanish because I was super obsessed with Telemundo and Univision. And I grew up in a multicultural environment. My cousins are half Mexican. And so to me, the way that the world worked was through multiculturalism, was through, you know, meeting different people where they are, their positionality, the intersectionality of it all before those words even like graced my mind. That wasn't until graduate school and beyond. But I had grown up in a multicultural existence. And was in that that bubble for so many years. We went to Academia de Español because, you know, I was thinking in Spanish, learning in Spanish. But then also, you know, I need to know how to read and write in Spanish. That would be very nice. And so I went to a Spanish immersion school where for the majority of our, our time there, I, say, I think until like third grade, we weren't taught in English. We were taught primarily and for the predominantly in Spanish. So English didn't roll up into my life, at least in the written sense, uh, until third grade, which was amazing, except for, I don't know, for all of you other bilingual people, English is hard. English is what I call rude, because you can sound out Spanish, you can know exactly, you know, what the sounds make and how they, they work together or not together. But when English was introduced, the teachers looked around and went, oh, oh, this girl has some problems. She has some issues. And so it became, I think this was like in second grade, early third grade, it became very obvious and known that I should get some testing. And it turned out that I had two learning disabilities. So maybe back in the day, we called it dyslexia. But I think now in 2020, we look at it as learning disabilities. So one in reading and one in writing. So if you are are somebody you know are looking to get tested, there are specific ways now and like very like pinpointed and exact ways of knowing like where someone of you might struggle. Yeah. So on that, the learning disabilities note, did you feel at that time being as young as you were, did you feel any difference from the other kids at all? In Spanish, not so much. I knew I struggled to to read out loud. Like even now, when I have to do an author event and read, you know, something that I know that I wrote out loud, I practice because I just have never been good at reading out loud in whatever language. So I remember being young and being like, "Please don't call on me. Please don't call on me." Because I, I don't know if you had this happen when you were in school, but you know, the, the one of the ways people would practice, students would practice uh, learning to read and read out loud was that you would do like popcorn and, you know, people would read a paragraph and then you would pick another student. I remember very vividly just being like, please don't pick on me. Please don't pick on me because I could never get the words out. I could never sound them out. The, I don't think the words particularly moved, but the letters like just kind of just mushed together. So I remember being like that thinking, oh my gosh, like what's wrong with me? But in a child's mind. So it was always reflected back on me. What is wrong with me? And that lasted, that mentality of there is something wrong, but I don't know what it is, lasted well into high school. So I didn't realize I had a disability until my freshman year of high school. So when you were thinking that question of what is wrong with me, 
had you like shifted the application of it to other parts of you or was it still specific to your learning disability? I was always focused around my intellect and my intelligence. So I knew I had a great imagination. I could play dress up and you know make up stories, go on adventures on recess or with my sisters at home. Like I had no problem creating stories, which kind of when I think back at it now, I'm like, yeah, that's why I'm an author. Because like I've just always been intrigued with creation and then storytelling. But when it came to maybe doing math or doing you know anything in the room in the in the schoolroom. That was always like, oh, well, I'm dumb. And I kind of lived in a family that took each of the girls, so myself and my two sisters, and each sister was good at something. I was never good at mm-hmm. school. I was never mm-hmm. put in that like, oh, she's so smart and so brilliant. It was like, well, she's pretty. And, um, you know, she, she, she likes to dance and she likes to play pretend. And that was pretty much my role. Um, now looking back, it's like very sad, but then I just, that was it. That was my thing. And I was like, well, I'm going to do my thing really, really well. Okay. So let's backtrack a bit. You talked about in your beginning part of the discussion, being in this multicultural bubble. So tell me about the experience, your first experience being outside of that bubble, if you can recall it and what it was like for you. I can, I can, and you're going to love it because, so here I am at Academia de Espanol going into, you know, every grade. So from kindergarten to sixth grade, I was with the same 25 kids, the same 25 students from all walks of life. We were all friends. We were all connected. Like if somebody had a birthday party, we would all go to that birthday party. I don't remember per se having clicks. I know there were people that like loved to play you know, basketball every recess and loved, you know, there's other kids that myself included that love to do like Star Wars or, you know, go on adventures or whatever. But at the end of the day, like we all intermixed and, and intermingled and we like maybe someday we would all play basketball and then someday we'd all play like pretend or what have you or, or whatever games that we would make up. I don't recall. And maybe that was just me as a person ever being stuck in a clique. That wasn't until I left academia where my parents moved me out of Grand Rapids, uh, me and the family out of Grand Rapids. And we went to a small town, Cedar Springs. Uh, it is just north of Grand Rapids off of 131, which is the main highway that you do to get up north up to the very tippy top. And I remember kind of showing up in Cedar and kind of being like, oh, <laughs> ooh, it's awfully white in here. And oh, it's awfully like, that's it. Like they were all people that kind of were in the same socioeconomic status. They all knew each other because in that particular town, and this is probably true for so many small towns, they all kind of stayed there. And the the stereotype and the joke was that they all married each other. And so people Mm -hmm. would always be, you know, intermingled in that way and really connected to this, this small town. Now small town's great, it just when you go from being surrounded by all kinds of people, all kinds of way of life, all kinds of language, all kinds of way of being. And then it's kind of just turns into this one thing. It was really shocking. And it was really like, I remember being like, I don't, I don't want to be here. (laughs) This is not the best for us. So did you find then from that point on, there was this reliance on your family structure? Because it sounds like family matters. And when we spoke previously, you talked about you are focused on creating family for self and defining it in your own terms. So did you rely on your family then? And how 
did that play out through the course of your life, the idea of family? Oh, yeah. It's so funny that you asked that because it is, I didn't realize it was a big part of who I am and like what I strive for in my life until the books came out, until the Starless series came out, because a lot of people were like, oh, I see the themes of you creating a family. And even my, my therapist called me out not too long ago where she was like, you're writing this family structure throughout your books because that's what you want, because that's your goal, because that's what you love and you gravitate, gravitate towards. I think when I was younger, I did really go back into hanging out with my cousins and hanging out with my sisters. I, I had friends, but I don't remember branching out to the extreme way that I might do now as an adult. I loved hanging out with my grandparents. I loved hanging out with my aunts and uncles. And I loved hanging out at home with my sisters. I think as I grew, I realized like family is not just blood. And I, I did live in a family structure that was really like it's blood, it's blood, like blood is thicker than water, even though that quote gets misused so many different times. I realize now because I've left the state of Michigan, because I do not live by my blood, if you will, family, I do live by some of my in-laws. Family is what you make of it. Family is the people you choose and you know will be there to support you in all ways, shapes, and forms. They might not always agree with you. You might have disagreements, but they, at the core of it, they respect, love, honor, and cherish you to the best of their ability, and you're able to do the same for them. So I definitely think I did that as a young person. My change and transformation from this like blood mindset to who I choose to be surrounded by really started to grow as I became a family therapist, as I started to learn about, you know, I left the state of Michigan, and you don't do that. Like there are so many people I know if you if met anyone else from Michigan, they can mm -hmm. have a similar situation where when you are in Michigan, you 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 don't need to leave. You got all the you got all of the mm -hmm. seasons, you got all the water, you got <laughs> all of the things. You just don't leave the great state of Michigan. And when I did, I felt like there was a backlash, not only from my family of origin, so my my parents and my sisters, but even from my extended family. Where because I left, they were like, okay, bye, out of sight, out of mind. And my my relationships that I had so fondly created as a young person kind of deteriorated as I grew up. But that sounds very sad for a minute ago, but it's it's not, it's not, it ends well. But I have reestablished a stronger family structure that still incorporates my family of origin in some ways. But my family that I have chosen and I surround myself now is so strong and diverse and beautiful that it is something that I, I really cherish. And I, I talk about as a, a family therapist, as an author. I mean, if you read the Starless series, there's nothing but family references, all the live long days. There's the two characters, Melissa and Mabel Pebbles, that are these two sisters that I swear Mabel is one of my sisters reincarnated because she has said quotes that have happened from my sister. And, and I have been told by readers that they are a beautiful representation of what it is like to have a sister because, you know, they're sassy and they'll call you, they'll call you out. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so tell me then how, a young woman from Michigan, multicultural family, ends up in Florida. <laughs> she runs as fast as she can from <laughs> Michigan. So I went to Oakland University outside of Detroit, and that was my first taste of higher education and my first taste of the world at large and all these new theoretical frameworks that I had never had access to at, in my small town. And so I knew from being at Oakland that I wanted to go on 
not only did I want to go on and, and continue getting more education because education is awesome, but I also didn't want to stay in Michigan because of the snow. And I knew that even though Michigan was great at that time, so it was probably around like 2010, 2011, that you know, the economy had crashed not too long before that. And just Detroit never bounced back. I don't even know if you, if you can say it has recently, especially probably because of Corona, there's probably, you know, still some issues. But I know at that time, it was really dead. There were not a lot of jobs. And I was like, well, I could go into the job market. But what, I, what would I be doing? Because I went to school to be a translator. I went to school with the mindset of helping people through translation. But at that time, nobody was hiring just straight translators. So I was like, you know what? What's my second passion? And my second passion was women and gender studies. Well, what do you do with a, a minor slash degree in that? Well, I guess you go into higher education and you go into academia and you just try and you become a professor. And so I applied to different schools and applied to the University of South Florida, which has the longest women and gender studies program, master's program in the country. And I got in, which was a huge shock and surprise to yours truly, who like is a first generation college student and college graduate, excuse me, and now, you know, first generation uh, graduate. And so... Right. With, you know, what's going to go with it? She graduated, y'all. That's all you need to know. First generation graduate. Yay for me. Yay, yay. Yippee skip. And so, yeah, so I went down to to Tampa and lived in Tampa for two years while I got my master's. While I was there, I was taking classes. I was focusing more on sex, uh, sexuality, sex, sexology, sex education, because at that time, I had just, when I got to Tampa, I had just finished up doing research with a professor at Oakland and because the department at USF knew that I was doing this work and had written a paper, I think it was sex education in Argentina, my my mentor there was like, hey, you know, I know this this first semester you taught like a history class online, but I want you to now work and do do, do your graduate assistant work with the gal who was teaching human sexual behavior. And I taught alongside her the entire, the rest of the time I was at USF. So I learned how to, you know, that therapy, that sex therapy was a thing, you know, got cut my teeth teaching at USF all the while being like, Hmm, I'm doing all this like sex education, sexology work. Am I going to be able to like go to, you know, when I say graduate school, I'm not just talking about the master's level. Cause my idea at the time was to go get a PhD but again, the economy wasn't that great. And I was looking towards the future of like, well, do I want to be in academia? Will someone hire somebody who's just teaching sex education? Or is there something else? And as I thought these things in my class that I was assisting, if you will, teaching slash assisting, there was this beautiful movie that we had to teach through. And how I was doing it was I would like watch the movie before the class because that's how I learned to teach all the material. Mm-hmm. And it was called The Clitoris. And every single person on this on this show was a sex therapist. I was like, hey, what's that? <laughs> what's a sex therapist? I've heard of a therapist, but like, what's this? Mm-hmm. And through my research, I realized that I could bridge my women and gender studies work and become a therapist so I could t- bridge it and actually love it. Because when I would work with the students, I love my office hours. I love my office hours because people would come. And they would tell me things and we'd work out problems, of course. And then we would like connect on a deeper level. And I realized I do love teaching because I do continue to teach in my various ways, whether it be workshops or through another university. But I love that one-on-one connection. And I was like, oh, you know what? I, 
as much as I love academia and I love education and I love, you know, learning, I think I, I think I'd rather be a therapist. I think I would really love that. Through that, I realized that because I had to figure out how do you become a sex therapist? You don't just roll up and go, this is what I am. Though some people believe that they can roll up and just be a sex therapist. They can't. Mm-hmm. That's not, that's not it. But I realized how to do it, which was get a, another master's. So I have two masters. My second master's is in marriage and family therapy because that theoretical framework, if you will, really relates well to sex therapy because I'm not only just working with individuals, I'm working with couples. So there's that element on top of, remember, I'm multicultural. Remember, I look at different systems and how people are intersexual and their positionality works for and against them. Well, that's what the theoretical framework of marriage and family therapy is based on. It's called the systems theory. And girl, as soon as I made that decision, whew, life just went click and everything fell into place. So what are some of the misconceptions or stereotypes around your role? Like when people hear you're a sex therapist, what's the first thing that, com- that comes to their mind? And then what is your response to that? <laughs> you could see me right now. I have a big old smile because it makes me laugh. That's why I'm laughing right now. The first thing people always, and I don't care if you're the most educated, most worldly, most whatever kind of person, all the time, everyone thinks I'm having sex with my client. Well, wow. <laughs> it's wild. So whether they think I'm having like actual, like the actual penetration or they think I'm watching them or I'm seeing something like a picture, I don't care. Everyone always imagines that I'm sexually related to my, my clients. I'm in the act with them. And I just go, no, <laughs> no, 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 no ethical licensed clinician is going to do that. Now, Are there some people out there that do that work, that sex work? Yes. That is not sex therapy, though. That is something else entirely. They have different training. There are sex surrogates. They don't really exist anymore, from my understanding, because of legal issues. But the way that I work with clients is through talk therapy. So they come in. They tell me about their problems. I'll talk it out with them. I give them some homework. My homework might be for them to do the act, if you will, to do something with a partner or to do something with themselves. But I always tell them, my clients, I don't want to see you having sex. I don't need to see you having sex. If I have questions, I will ask because I have a wonderful imagination. And I sometimes my beloved clients like to give me a lot of details, but you have to kind of walk that fine line. Like, are they giving me details because I need that information? Are they giving me details because you know, insert whatever unsafe practice might be happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, uh, the other misconception I would assume is that people would think that because of COVID, you know, the practice would have, you know, slowed down a bit. So tell me how COVID-19 has impacted your role and your work. Yeah. So uh, when that, when COVID decided to rear its ugly head back in February, March, I knew instinctively that one of two things were happen were going to happen. Whether people were going to like you know step away from therapy because what they could maybe not come to the office, maybe they weren't going to be allowed for whatever reason. Maybe people were going to get really sick. I think at that time nobody knew the severity and what that was going to look like, and if you know nobody knew, so it was, everything was just a guessing game. But I also thought, okay, if it's going to be that stressful in that realm, then people are going to need mental health services, and so I thought. 
preparing that I would, thank goodness, I was very happy that I had already gotten this training, would going to call upon my ability to do telemental health, which means doing therapy either over phone, over a computer, whether that be FaceTime, other platforms that you could use that do the video uh, or anything like that. I don't do email and, e- and text. You can, but that's, it does not work for Samantha's way of doing therapy. So I like to see my people and hear my people. And so I was like, yeah, yeah I got that, that certification done a while back. Like I feel comfortable. I got ready. I figured out my platforms that I wanted to try and use. I think at that same time, around that same time, you know, HIPAA had been I don't more compliant, more accepted by other platforms. So I knew I had options. So mm-hmm. I'm sitting there ready. I'm sitting there prepared. I'm letting my clients know I'm, I'm preparing the documentation. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And all of a sudden, when I finally reach out to my clients, now this is in-person. We're still doing in-person therapy, but I'm giving them a heads up. Look, I think the state is going to close. You know, we're not going to be able to meet in person. Here are some telemental options. My caseload, I want to say 75% said, mm, that's cute, but uh, no, I'm not doing that. And I had to sit back like, what are you, you're not, what? And so a lot of them said, no, I'm not going to do telemental health. I'm going to come in. If you have me, I'm coming in. And I had to ask myself and my husband and close colleagues, what is this? Because I was not prepared for this backlash of, that's cute. Telemental health sounds so fun. It's not for me. And a lot of people came from it in this mindset of, I'm doing sex therapy. What if their partner overhears them or they live with people who they don't want to share that, you know, part of who they are? Because, you know, a lot of the work that I do is more in that questioning space. And then other people were like, no, 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 it's fine. I really want to come in. I need to come in. If I don't come in, I'm not going to see another person for who knows how long. Mm-hmm. And so I had to make that decision of, well, do I push back and say, no, I'm only doing telemental health. I guess I'll see you when this is over. or do I continue as is adding, you know, other safety measures? And I, I decided the latter. I decided that I was going to move my office around. And I'm very fortunate to work in an office that I can, you know, move my furniture where I was sick. And now I think I moved it even further. So it was six feet, but now I think I'm around eight feet or something. Like I'm back. I'm like, don't come near me. Um, we were wearing masks. We weren't as an office as a whole. Cause I do share space with other clinicians. Made re- regulations using our waiting room and like who could use what and how to clean and all of that jazz. So there were regulations to keep everybody safe, using masks, staying distant. But for a while, it was like, oh, okay, this is this is not what I'm hearing from other clinicians because other clinicians were like, yes, we transitioned so easily. My caseload loves it. Some clinicians that I know personally never transitioned back. So they just do telemental health. They just do it from the safety of their own home and they love it. It's really worked out for them. I just never had that, what I'm going to call a luxury because it was either I, I let my people go and you know, hope for the best and hope everybody stays sane and safe and, and happy. Or I make the decision to continue on as is. And I had to be very quiet about that in my community of therapists, because I, like I said, a lot of people could easily transition and a lot of people reporting that it was easy transition to, to, to transition. I didn't have that. And I really think it's the nature of what I do and the, the content of what I talk about, because I just, I didn't have that option. Yeah. So it's interesting being a sex therapist, family therapist, but also being a writer and 
the one question that sticks in my mind is how do you function in those two brains? Are there commonalities in the two that help you to kind of function or do you actually have to compartmentalize like when you're writing and say, okay, this is my writing head and space. How do you do that? Yeah. So I do know I I have time management is probably the first thing I thought about because I found, especially now in 2020, I'm very grateful for the lessons that I've learned in 2020 because I think it is making me more aware of how those two mindsets can work for and against each other. If I'm really tired, one of those areas is going to suffer. I'm going to have like a, you know, write a bad scene and it's just going to fall flat or I'm going to have a bad session. And then I really hate that because that to me is the worst, it's the worst feeling. And so I am very good at time management. So my, I work Monday through Friday. My Mondays and Fridays are for writing slash continuing education uh, opportunities. And then I see clients Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays all day. Now, in the beginning of the pandemic, I had a little bit more wiggly room because even though I was still seeing clients in person, a lot of people did a pause or, you know, unfortunately people lost their jobs and benefits and all of that. So we definitely did a pause in that realm. And so when I would have like big chunks of time between clients for my self-care, I would be writing. And so I would be, you know, taking, taking time to do that or to do both. But then, you know, as things have loosened up and people have become a little bit more uh, in need of mental health services, I have again grown again and I'm in a very good place and I'm very honored and grateful for that. But then I realized, oh, I was doing six months ago, Samantha, which was, you know, writing and doing therapy on the same days. Where now I'm like, oh, no, we can't. Her brain explodes. Now, you asked me if there's a way that these two worlds mesh together. Mm-hmm. And my, my second thought was like that creativity. Because I'll be working with a client and I'll be able to just like, hmm, I'm going to try this intervention and I will just go with it. And I kind of, I love that. And I know in the writing world, there are people who can outline to within an inch of its life their books. I have never done that. Like I write myself notes. So I, if I have a thought, I'm like, oh, that's a really interesting idea for a scene. Mm-hmm. Or like, oh, yes, I need to make sure this happens to this person because da 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 da. And so I just fly by the seat of my pants in writing. And I kind of, I don't want to say I do that in therapy, but it's that creativity, that spontaneity that I think both of those worlds really work. It works for them. Now, I do have a treatment plan for every single client. So don't get twisted. I'm not un- unethical. But I do plan out some things in both realms. But for the most part, if I have a client that comes in and I'm prepared to do, you know, something else like a genogram, which is a glorified family tree in in family therapy speak, then they sit down and they're like, no, this happened to me this week. I'm like, screw the, the genogram. What are we talking about now? What's going on? What do we have to work through? And so I think that's how they both work together is that creativity, that spontaneity, but then also using the theoretical framework as a therapist, using what I've learned to be a a writer, you need to know the rules before you can break them. And I think that's where I am in both arenas. Yeah. And I think that's why you can be creative and spontaneous because you have the framework, the foundation and the structure. So you know, kind of what the expect, the minimum expectation is. So knowing that and being secure in that allows yeah. you to kind of launch and do these other things. Yeah, because just so, because I have an idea of an intervention, I don't know where that intervention is going to take us. You right. know, I could sit down with this, like, all the clients and say, okay, everybody, let's define stuff today. Let's define vulnerability. Let's define sex. Let's define love. 
And I'm never going to go in the same place with a client. I might have the, the bare bones idea, but then through whatever we're doing, we might come across something else and go in a different direction. It's the same with writing. Like I have these beautiful ideas for scenes and I'm like, oh, I think that needs to happen. But how I get there is always a surprise and it's always beautiful and great. And then something even bigger happens from all of that. So I love it. I think that's just a, a wild ride that's just good for the soul. Yeah. So in the music industry, music artists tend to do covers Mm -hmm. as an ode to particular artists or just for the sake of doing a cover. So as a writer, if you could do a story cover for any writer and step in their shoes and rewrite that story with the same foundational elements, who would that writer be or what is that story? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'm going to be controversial, but I think it's necessary in today's world. I want to rewrite Gone with the Wind. I think Gone with the Wind. I know. I told you. Hear me out though. Hear me out. Margaret Mitchell. I love this. I love where it's going. Okay. Keep going. (laughs) Okay. Margaret Mitchell, though problematic, is a product of her time. And the story is a product of its time. But that is not an excuse for how poorly she wrote all of the supporting characters. Now, I saw the movie first and then read the book as an adult. And so because of my brain and how I I am as a person, I've done a lot of research. Am I a scholar of Margaret Mitchell? I guess, but not a trained one. Just somebody who was like, I'm going down this rabbit hole. I need to know the answers and the facts. I think Margaret Mitchell had a wonderful idea in terms of like the sweeping novella because of Scarlet and Rhett. And now Scarlet and Rhett are a hot mess. They are not the epitome of a loving, healthy relationship. Another element that I would want to rewrite because that is one of my cornerstones as a therapist and an author is I want realistic, healthy depictions of relationships or at the very least some growth. And I don't think either character ever got that. Therefore, the readers internalize this like really unhealthy relationship. And for for, for decades, because that movie is still in the news, it was just in the news not too long ago because at HBO. And that is such a, a negative view of relationships. On top of the entire history that it's trying to cover, which was I'm going to say the Civil War, but I think what I read once was that it was more about the Reconstruction period. Also problematic. Maybe we can do some more research and like pull out positive and negative aspects of that history and rewrite it in a way that is inclusive, that is not super biased in the white direction, if you will. And so, yeah, I, I really I don't want to talk too much about it, but I think a rewrite with a multicultural author staff. And I don't know how that would work with so many authors, but I think like if a a white author and a, and a black author and maybe a Latinx author or whoever came together and wanted to actually write about that and do it well with history and facts and well-developed characters, I think we could get a more accurate depiction of what it was like during that time than what we see in Gone with the Wind. That is awesome. I, I love it. Oh my okay, god! Because it was very. I, con- I know it's controversial. <laughs> I I think of that book only in terms of, for me, it was about the ending because the book just ended. Yeah, yeah. You never got that payoff. Yep. And as a child, when you're like, you know, it, again, I didn't know about social justice back then. I know I was definitely a feminist. I was standing up for people's for people's rights and all of that. But I didn't know what I know now as an adult. 
So the thing that stuck out to me as in a child was the ending. Like, where's the happily ever after? And now as an adult, I'm like, no, sometimes people don't get happily ever after, especially unhealthy people who make so many mistakes and don't grow. And so I would just be very interested in learning more about the history, the context, all of it, working with another author that could write a realistic depiction of of all the characters. Because I think too, when when I was doing my research on that, one thing I want to say is like Margaret Mitchell didn't just do a bad job on writing the, the slave perspective, but she did a bad job of writing any kind of character outside of Brett and Scarlett. They are the only two Mm -hmm. characters that are fleshed Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Problematic. Like in 2020, Mm -hmm. we deserve books and stories that are fleshed out to within an inch of their life because that's just the right thing to do. Yeah. I'm Samantha Hewigan, and I am disrupting balance by embracing what it means to be vulnerable, authentic, and unapologetically me. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balanced Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.